Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 92. That's right. Bienvenidos, bitches, and thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No! There are, in fact, many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode so true now uh who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about the Atlanta child murders. Between 1979 and 1981, children and teenagers were disappearing off the streets of Atlanta, mm. later turning up dead, terrifying the entire city. At least 28 people in the Atlanta area, most of them young black boys and teenagers, were kidnapped and murdered. 
Uh, now, this case is massive when you mm. consider the number of victims, the victims' families, the politics, the suspects, the evidence, and the theories about the case. And spoiler alert, even Beth and Wendy don't see completely eye to eye on this one. Mm-mm. So to do it justice, we felt we had to turn it into a two-parter. And I also wanted to add that this is the case that started Fruit Loops. Like, do like going memory, yeah, go yeah. back in time. Wayne's world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were talking about Atlanta Monster, and uh, you were saying that you didn't think there were any black serial killers, and I said, uh, yeah, there are the and, OG uh, of true crime set me straight. <laughs> She sure did. And uh, that's what started this whole thing. Yes. And now you're stuck with us. Uh, (laughs) But before we get into the details of the case, how you doing? I'm all right. Uh, It's been a really busy week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though, uh, you know, we had Labor Day last week and I took an extra day off. So I had uh, a three-day week last week at work, but it felt like a month. (laughs) Really? That extra day did all of that for you? Well, it was just a really busy week. So, Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was kind of (laughs) terrible. Yeah, no, uh, for me, it felt like it was just mistake after mistake after mistake that I did. Uh, And so speaking of mistakes, uh, I have a quick correction from the last episode that took place in Chicago uh, in, I believe it was 2008, we did uh, William Balfour. And yeah. yes, uh, we, I, I threw out some cockamamie name. I don't, I might've got my <laughs> cases mixed up or whatever. We're, like, we're doing a lot over here for Loose HQ. And I uh, incorrectly named the mayor at the time. The mayor of Chicago at the time was Mayor Daly, not the other guy I mentioned. So thanks for keeping me honest. Now, as I like to say, don't fact check me, but I do appreciate <laughs> a nice, polite correction. Uh, and I also just wanted to shout out everybody who's been affected by the wildfires. Yeah. Um, everyone's still recovering from the hurricanes. There are more hurricanes on the horizon. Everyone Yikes. who's facing evictions or economic crises, everyone dealing with COVID, and everyone just trying their darndest to get through this virtual learning stuff and yeah. the rest of the blessings. I can't think of the opposite of blessings that 2020 has to offer us. <laughs> the prayer list is long, everyone, and thoughts and prayers to everybody from Fruit Loops for yeah. real. So now uh, we are going to dive into our listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Hmm. Did they come in too hot this week or did they calm down? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Nice and smooth. Down, angel, down. (laughs) So we got an uh, Instagram DM from Rachel92, and she said, Hi, Wendy and Beth. I'm an East Coast listener that has been tuning into you guys for about a year now. I've been playing catch up on and off, and I just have to say what an excellent job you guys are doing. When I saw the synopsis for your podcast, I just thought, a podcast on specifically people of color? Uh I wonder why they're doing that. People know there are black serial killers. 
And then I actually tried to think of one black serial killer and I had an extremely hard time doing it. (laughs) The only two I could come up with were Christopher Dorner and John Muhammad. And I actually couldn't even remember his first name. Mm. So your podcast is absolutely amazing, despite my initial thoughts. But I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. Yes, we do, girl. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I've listened to other true crime podcasts that have mentioned many of the people you two speak on, but they never mention the person's race. So I really do appreciate that you guys do that. I'm about six months behind, and I just listened to your interview with Phil Chalmers and Delmas Colvin, and that really blew my mind. (laughs) It blew our minds, too. (laughs) It sure did. (laughs) I couldn't believe you interviewed an actual serial killer. I couldn't help but write you right away. That was amazing. I just wish Beth would have talked a bit more. And uh, <laughs> full disclosure, I'm actually pretty shy. So when we when we talk to people, and especially if they're famous or, you know, a serial killer, <laughs> I get a little uh, tongue tied. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's and, you know, you Beth always says we each have our strengths. Yes. And I we I acknowledge that my weakness, like Beth is super detail oriented, like a perfectionist. I am none of those things. I am basically really good at talking. Just a mouth (laughs) with legs. Yeah, we're kind of yin and yang. She she's good at the things I'm not good at and vice versa. So so thank you. We work well together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, she said, keep doing what you're doing, guys. Hope you're staying safe during this time. I haven't listened to any of your new episodes, so I hope you guys are doing okay. And we are. Oh, so we thank are you. hip-hop air horns. <laughs> yeah, Rachel, thank, you, thank Rachel. you so much. What else yeah. you got, Beth? We got an iTunes review from Gwyneth Not Paltrow titled, A Bit of History with Your Murder. Mm. And she said, Wendy and Beth do a great job of setting the historical and cultural context of these true crimes. Informative, and they keep the victims in mind and don't over-sensationalize the crimes. They include a how-not-to-get-murdered section of takeaways, and mostly I enjoy their banter and discussion. It sounds like having coffee with friends. <laughs> Thank you so so much, Gwyneth. Yes. And we get a lot of criticism for the banter, but we polled our fruities in our Facebook group and they like the banter and these are our hardcore fans. So we're going to keep it because, uh, you know, haters going to hate. That's right. Hate, hate, hate. I'm just going <laughs> to shake, 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 shake. Yeah, we do. I mean, we follow the fans, right? We take criticism. Right. And see if we can learn from it and grow. We like constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. And so when we do get criticism, we we, uh, throw it out there and say, hey, uh, you guys, you do you like this or mm-hmm. not like it or whatever? And, yeah. and you know, and we, we take try a look to... inward too, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like I, uh, I'm bringing this to the altar. I interrupt a lot and oh. I am having, <laughs> I'm praying to the Lord Jesus <laughs> that he will bless me with discernment so that I will shut the hell up when heaven's <laughs> talking. <laughs> uh, but as we said that, you know, talking is your strong, strong point and, and talking <laughs> is not mine. So, uh, 
it all works out. It does. It does. Um, I, I would like to uh, point out that we got some new Patreons this week. Rachel, yeah. no last name, Tori Daigle, and Marus, Martuska, excuse me. Uh, so here is your tune, everybody. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Where is my Rachel? Where is my Tori Dago? Where is my Martuska? Where have all the podcasts gone? Ooh. Hit me all, you pie. Hit me all, you pie. Hit me all, you pie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Woo. <laughs> Another one. Yeah. <laughs> all right Uh, yeah thank you you guys yeah hope you love it but if you hate it sorry not sorry also (laughs) we're gonna take a quick ad break and let's take a we'll we'll come back to the story when we get back yeah eyes left listeners if you love true crime and you're looking for a twist to the genre i've got just the spin for you zero dark murder I'm Siobhan Nakia, and every week I tell true crime stories from all around the world. And not just any stories. I bring you cases with a military nexus, where the victim or the offender are linked to the armed forces. And don't worry if you've never served. You're more seasoned than you think. The Grim Sleeper, the Golden State Killer, Vanessa Guillen. Even George Floyd's tragic death is linked to the military. You know these stories, so you're a zero dark one by default. Join me every Monday, wherever you get your podcast, for zero dark tales so shocking, so unbelievable, you'll never look at the American flag the same way again. Okay, we are back. So Beth, remind us who we're talking about. During a 22-month period from July 1979 to May 1981, at least 28 people in the Atlanta area, all of them black and poor, most of them young boys and teenagers, were kidnapped and murdered. Wayne Williams is still the prime suspect in the Atlanta child murders, although he was only convicted of killing two adults. As we said earlier, this case is very complicated, and we've done our best to give the case justice, including pushing back our normal recording more than once to do more research. Mm -hmm. And we encourage you to check out our show notes for additional information about the case. There's even FBI files in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. That's right. So now we're going to get into the stats, which is normally my favorite part of the story only because um, it's like the meat and potatoes, right? The the numbers, right? But this case is so sad. I'm not <laughs> going to do a hip hop air horns. Uh, so I'm just going to dive into it. The Atlanta child murders took place from 1979 to 1981 in ATL, Georgia. There are 30 victims and we're going to speak their names. Um, Edward Smith was 14. Alfred Evans, 13, Milton Harvey, 14, Yusuf Bell, 9, Angel Lanier, 12, Jeffrey Mathis, 11, Eric Middlebrooks, 12, Christopher Richardson was also 12, Latanya Wilson, not sure of her age, 
Aaron Weish, 10. Anthony Carter, 9. Earl Terrell, 10. Clifford Jones, 12. Darren Glass, 10. Charles Stevens, 12. Aaron Jackson, 9. Patrick Rogers, 16. Luby Jeter, 14. Terry Pugh, 15. Patrick Baltasar, 12. Uh, Curtis Walker, 13. Joseph Bell, 15. Timothy Hill was 13. William Barrett, 17. And the adult victims are Eddie Duncan, uh, 21. Larry Rogers was 20. Michael McIntosh, 23. Jimmy Ray Payne, 21. John Porter, 28. And Nathaniel Cater, 27. Uh, There are 30 victims, uh, 24 children and six adults. Wayne Williams was convicted of the murders of two of those adults, Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater. And five of the murders of the children, Darren Glass, Latonya Wilson, Jeffrey Mathis, Angel Lanier, and Edward Smith, were unsolved. And nonetheless, the city of Atlanta closed the case in 1981. Uh, there are also numerous theories about the murders. Again, this is what started it all for Fruit Loop. So, uh, I think the conspiracy theories are an interesting part of the case, which is why I'm naming them here. Some say Williams killed all the victims. Some say he killed no one. Some say he had help. Some say it was an elaborate KKK conspiracy where they enlisted black people to apprehend black children so they could torture and murder them. Some say Atlanta's black elites were involved. There were theories about pedophilia and sex trafficking rings. Um, By the way, Human trafficking is not a new phenomenon. It goes back to slavery. Uh, There was a theory that the parents were responsible and theories that it was a combination of all of those. Um, So as you're listening, you decide. Uh, So we are going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. This story takes place in Atlanta, Georgia in 1979 uh, through 1981. We covered Atlanta in a recent episode about Michael Terry, an LGBTQ serial killer in the 80s. And it goes without saying that Atlanta has an immense rich, rich history that will be impossible for us to get to in one episode. But here's a little taste. The Atlanta region was, surprise, surprise, originally Creek and Cherokee Native American territory. Then the British came in and Georgia became the 13th British colony. After the revolution in 1788, Georgia became the fourth state to join the United States of America. Georgia became extremely aggressive about land claims, claiming 100 million acres of land, which included Cherokee and Creek lands. The federal government did not respect Georgia's claims initially, but eventually agreed to remove the Native Americans living on those lands at some point in the future. Okay, the agreement known as the Compact of 1802 began a systemic removal of Native Americans from northern Georgia. And on May 28, 1830, the Indian Removal Act was signed by uh, or signed into law by President Andrew Jackson, who Trump often compares himself to, mm-hmm. uh, who was a forceful proponent of Indian removal. Trash. Yeah. Dumpster fire of a human <laughs> being. <laughs> the city of Atlanta, Georgia, became a busy center for uh, cotton distribution on the backs of enslaved black people, and the Georgia Railroad helped the economy thrive. After the Civil War, when freed slaves came into Atlanta in search of opportunity, Atlanta's black population began to grow. Atlanta became an industrial and commercial center of the South and a center for black education. Some of our greatest HBCUs like Atlanta University
University, Morehouse, Clark, Spelman, and Morris Brown were established in Atlanta. As Atlanta grew, so did racial tensions. Atlanta was a major organizing center of the civil rights movement in the late 1950s and 60s, led by Martin Luther King Jr., and it was the home of Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. However, we cannot forget Atlanta's ties to the KKK, especially as it relates to this case. No, 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 no. (laughs) The Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1865 when Reconstruction was implemented after the Civil War. And white people in the South freaked the fuck out. (laughs) The Klan started in Tennessee, but then spread throughout the South. They claimed to seek justice for crimes against white people and protect their white supremacy. The original Klan had been mostly stamped out by the mid-1870s, but in 1915, William J. Simmons, a former Methodist preacher, was inspired by the film The Birth of a Nation to organize a new clan in Stone Mountain, Georgia, as a, quote, patriotic Protestant fraternal society, unquote. Its relaunch occurred atop Stone Mountain with a burning with the burning of a gigantic wooden cross, which was visible from downtown Atlanta. Sounds horrific. Close the windows. Uh, Located just outside of Atlanta, Stone Mountain is an enormous rock, 800 feet tall and a mile and a half wide. Wide. Carved into the northern face of the mountain is a huge image that depicts three leaders of the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis, all riding horses, each holding a hat over his head. Or his heart. heart. <laughs> each. <laughs> uh, <laughs> each. I'll say that again. Hello, my baby. Hello, honey. Yeah. I would like that better. Yeah. Uh too bad it's worse uh each holding a hat over his heart <laughs> this image was started in 1924 by gutzen borglum who's the same guy who carved mount rushmore and there's debate over whether or not he was actually a clan member but he was at the very least a clan sympathizer and he held the same views on white supremacy don't fact check me on this but i seem to remember somewhere uh along the my history road that stone mountain was actually a sacred place for indigenous native americans i would not doubt that okay um the united daughters of the confederacy started the project and got burglum on board the stated intention of the united daughters of the confederacy was to tell the glorious fight against the greatest odds a nation ever faced that their hallowed memory would never die their primary activity was to support the construction of confederate memorials the united daughters of the confederacy or udc denies assertions that it promotes white supremacy But it has been labeled neo-Confederate by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which monitors hate groups and extremists. Mm. Neo-Confederates are groups and individuals who portray the Confederate States of America and its actions during the American Civil War in a positive light. You all deny it, but we see you. We see you out here. Like, what do you think? We're blind? 
Uh, this view is also called lost cause of the Confederate Confederacy or simply lost cause. It romanticizes the old South, um, AKA, AKA a South in which, um, black people knew their place and the Confederate war, uh, effort distorting history in the process. Slavery is sentimentalized, um, which is, Weird. Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> with white Southerners telling stories about happy slaves. See, they're so happy. They're singing. Um, except all their songs are about escaping and going to freedom. Anyway, and the Mammy or Uncle Tom, who was part of the family, and they were so happy. Everybody was so happy yeah. back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. In any case, in 1925, Borglum was kicked off the Stone Mountain Project after only completing the head of Robert E. Lee. We haven't been able to find out exactly why, but there was some infighting within the KKK. Surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're a mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and financial issues, and the KKK got pissed when Borglum was approached about the Mount Rushmore project. And in any case, he destroyed his models and fled Georgia, and his work was blasted from the face of the mountain, and other sculptors were enlisted to finish the job. Oh, in late 19... That whole, this whole story, this part of the story was fascinating to me. <laughs> this week on The Real Housewives of Stone Mountain. 
the grand dragon uh, yeah. is pissed <laughs> at Borglum. Yeah. Oh man, the drama. Save the drama for your mama. Uh, in in late 1945, after World War II ended and black soldiers came back to Atlanta after serving their country, the Ku the Ku Klux Klan. That's a tongue twist. Tongue. That is a tongue twister. twister. Yes. Uh, held a rally at the top of Stone Mountain featuring a 300 foot wide cross lit by fuel oil Jesus visible Christ. from 60 miles away. Uh, did you guys really need to go that far to let it said, quote, to let the N words know the war is over and that the Klan is back, end quote, as one attendee said. And among attendees were dozens of Atlanta policemen. In 1958, under Georgia's segregationist governor, Marvin Griffin, the state created the Stone Mountain Memorial Association and purchased the rock and surrounding land to create a memorial park. So now it's a state park and the carving is protected by state law. The park's official grand opening was held on April 14, 1965, 100 years to the day that President Abraham Lincoln was shot. Just in case you're wondering where their loyalties lay. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, oh boy. Uh, today, millions of people visit Stone Mountain every year. I don't think black people do, though. And it's Georgia's (laughs) most visited attraction. The park offers hiking, fishing, golf, playgrounds, a sky ride, cable car. And by the way, if if there are black people listening to this who do visit Stone Mountain, please tell me about it. Uh, A cable car, a 4D movie theater, gift shops, et cetera, et cetera. There's even a laser light show. It also offers visitors the lost cause view of the past eulogizing the leaders of the Confederacy and celebrating their cause as valiant and noble. Karen Cox, a historian of Southern culture, writes, quote, the public often learns history through tourism. Therefore, the accuracy of staged authenticity is significant, both educationally and culturally, unquote. Stone Mountain Management rewrites the public narrative of the area through the fun and innocent environment of a park that was and still is the site for some of the Ku Klux Klan's rituals. Yeah, I think in one of the documentaries, <laughs> Big Boy was like, ah, the clan has the clans over there. The clan, you know, that's that's a clan spot. You know, Big right. Boy, is, right? He's no. an al- Oh, he was in the ID documentary uh, and he's a famous Atlanta rapper and one part of the famous duo Outcast. That's oh, Outcast okay. with a Yeah. All right. Um, Historically, the Klan has been responsible for horrific and terrifying acts from cross burnings, lynchings, castrations, rapes, arson, torture, and, you know, just general terrorism. And in Atlanta, it was no secret that members of the Klan held political positions and were fully entrenched in the police department. Cut to Atlanta in 1979. Prior to white flight, Atlanta was pretty evenly split between black and white, but white flight left the city's remaining populace as majority black. That contributed to a mostly black police force and black leadership, including a black city council. Some of the white folks who fled the city included seasoned homicide investigators, and the remaining police force was relatively green. The Dixie Hills neighborhood in Atlanta was where Wayne Williams was born and raised. It is also the area where most of the victims were from. 
Dixie Hills was a black working class, middle class neighborhood. When public housing projects were built in the area in the 60s and 70s, that contributed to white flight and even some black people followed. Maynard H. Jackson Jr., who had been elected in 1973 as the first black person to run a major southern city. During his eight year stint in city City Hall, he launched programs intended to empower neighborhoods, raise the profile of Black Pride, included minorities in the city's economic boom, and began building the foundation that one day would land the Summer Olympics. The entire city leadership was Black. Lee P. Brown was appointed the Public Safety Commissioner of Atlanta, and uh, I think that means he was the police, police chief. That was my interpretation, but I could be wrong. There were four black colleges in Atlanta that were black. There were black owned businesses, a black middle class, black activism, and probably more opportunities for black people than in most other cities. Atlanta's slogan was that it was the city too busy to hate, but a slogan was all that it was because it was still the South. Racism was still present. And while there were more opportunities for black people, those who were poor had little mobility and they continued to struggle. In the late 70s and early 80s, the city of Atlanta was experiencing a boom and had become a major economic player in the South. Several Fortune 100 companies had come to call Atlanta home, such as Coca-Cola, Cox Communications, and Delta Airlines, and the city's Black population continued to grow. Mayor Jackson pushed through efforts to build and expand Hartsfield Airport in the late 1970s, and on September 24, 21st, 1980, Atlanta's new passenger terminal, the largest in the world, open for business. The airport is currently the busiest airport in the world and employs over 60,000 people. Wow, that's a lot. Mm, yeah. Hip hop air horns. Yeah. CNN was founded in 1980 in Atlanta. This case created a media frenzy and the coverage was intense. We say on Fruit Loops that the news is racist, but in 1979, 80, and 81, they were even worse in that way and the way that they reported on the children, the mothers, and the communities that were devastated by these murders. At the same time, they were trying to keep themselves and their children safe. In Atlanta in 1980, the population was 425,000, and according to police records, there were 201 murders and manslaughters. At the time, Atlanta had one of the highest murder rates in the country, and there were approximately 10 murders of children per year on average. And despite the city's economic growth, many of its Black residents remained in poverty. So uh, now uh, that we're done with the setting and laying the context, we're going to get into some more context and talk about Wayne Williams and his early life. What do you got, Beth? Wayne Bertram Williams was born on May 27th, 1958 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was a Gemini. And he was born to Homer and Faye Williams. At the time Wayne was born, Atlanta was still racially segregated. As we mentioned earlier, the family lived in the Dixie Hills neighborhood in southwest Atlanta. Wayne's parents both worked as teachers, and Homer also had a side hustle as a freelance photographer for the Atlanta Daily World, a newspaper with a mostly black readership. They were older when Wayne was born. His mother was 40, and I think his father was 45, and he was an only child, so his parents doted on him, buying him toys, electronics, and gadgets. There was no abuse or drug use in the home that we know of, and Wayne's parents rarely drank alcohol, and when they did, it was consumed only in moderation. 
According to the former FBI agent John Douglas of Mindhunter fame, there was something in Homer's background that was never brought up at trial, but he would not say what that was, so uh, we can only guess. And he said this to Payne Lindsay on Atlanta Monster when Lindsay asked him if he thought that Homer and Wayne had a strange relationship. Wayne was considered very bright by teachers and classmates. Some said a genius. Wayne was encouraged by his parents to pursue his interests, which were music and electronics. Wayne's favorite band was the Jackson 5. He was an A student in school and at the top of his class. His teacher said he was quiet, respectful, and helpful. But Wayne was a bit of a loner. He was awkward, wore glasses, and was a nerd, which made him a target for bullies. He didn't fit the mold of a typical black dude, which uh, made him a target. However, he did have a slick tongue, was quick-witted, and was good at trash-talking. And um, I took that to mean he wasn't what a typical black dude. Like, he he wasn't, um, like, quote-unquote, street or quote unquote, I can't think of a better term, or like hood. Um, he was really articulate um, and just wasn't interested in the same things that other um, Black dudes in the culture were at the time. So, right. Um, but speaking of culture, ding, ding. Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. A couple of sources referred to his skill as uh, with his slick tongue and quick witted as quote unquote the dozens. And the way des- they described it was an aggressive way in which black people insult and one up each other while maintaining self control. Um, and I guess it comes from a West African tradition. And sadly, the term is also tied to slavery when human beings who were enslaved were no longer longer in their prime and had less value and were sold for less at auction by the dozens. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. So anyway, he was able to talk his way out of getting his ass kicked. His smooth talking skills made him somewhat popular and he liked taking radios apart and putting them back together. And he started fixing mechanical gadgets for friends and family for free. But then eventually he started charging people. In high school, he worked at local radio stations in the Atlanta area. And in 1973, he built a radio station in his parents' home. He had civil rights leaders at the time come to his home and be on his show. Soon, the station called WRAZ moved into an office building. At WRAZ, Wayne was domineering and very much in charge. It was later said by those who worked at WRAZ that his domination of the small station's affairs was one of the reasons for a high turnover of personnel and the station's eventual failure. Mm, a little foreshadowing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Wayne ran the station, his father and mother began pouring their savings into it. They purchased expensive broadcast equipment on credit. Friends and relatives put in money too, and an arrangement was worked out with an adver- and with an advertising executive who sold commercial time for the station. But by the spring of 1976, the same year that Wayne graduated with honors from Frederick Douglass High School, the radio station went under and. And the Williams family filed for bankruptcy, listing thousands of dollars in debt. Many of the financial problems were linked to Wayne's domination of the affairs of the radio station. That's unfortunate, too, because the reason why Wayne's parents stayed in that neighborhood is because their house was paid off. So when Whoa, when the white okay. flight happened that we talked about and some black right. people left, they were like, eh, we already paid this house off. We're going to retire. Well, at least they kept their house. Yeah. 
At least so that's there's good. that. Yeah. Uh, so Wayne was known by his acquaintances and associate associates as something of a bullshitter, always exaggerating details of his career, such as having contacts in the Atlanta radio and music scenes. Although most of the people said they never met him. He claimed to have been tapped by the CIA while still a teenager. Uh, I don't think they do that. Uh, he <laughs> told people that he'd flown fighter jets. He had not. Few, uh, few people knew him well, even those people who gave he gave us professional or personal references. They said he was a private person who kept others at a distance. He didn't really have any close friends. Like his father, Wayne started working as a freelance photographer, sometimes called a night crawler or disaster photographer. He had a police scanner that he used to find out when something was going down so that he could be the first person on the scene. He was tech savvy and used his skills to take videos of crimes and disaster scenes, then sell them to local newspapers and TV stations. He became obsessed with the police. And at one time, he drove a blue Plymouth Fury, the same model that the police drove, loaded with a police scanner and police lights. In 1976, he was arrested for impersonating a police officer when he sped to a crime scene in his car using his police lights. The charge was reduced to unauthorized use of emergency lights, and it was handled in traffic court. He was also known to threaten to arrest children. One neighbor said that all the kids in the neighborhood thought he was a policeman because he spoke and acted like one and even carried a badge around with him. He would tell the kids to get off the street here. He would lock them up. He also became a self-employed talent scout. He was obsessed with the Jackson 5, but I mean, who wasn't? Uh, <laughs> a group made up of phenomenal young black male performers, and he set out to form a group just like it. Uh, that he called Gemini. He put up flyers at schools, arcades, skating rinks, and shopping malls, stating he was looking for talent and offering free and private meetings. He had the test scores to get into local colleges in Atlanta and was offered scholarships, but he declined to take them. But in 1976, he enrolled at Georgia State University and majored in business. But his heart wasn't in it. So in 1978, he dropped out, continued living with his parents and pursuing his business ventures as a freelance photographer and talent agent. There are also questions about William's sexuality. He was found to have only been involved with one woman. There were rumors that he spent his work at, as a night owl cruising for men. I can only imagine how hard it was to be out black or white in the 1970s. But one psychologist said that he was asexual. So I wanted to take this moment to welcome you all to Culture Corner. Sex and sexuality are complicated to figure out for yourself. But for those of us trying to be allies and culturally culturally competent, we have to challenge ourselves to try. According to the Trevor Project, it's important to remember that asexuality is an umbrella term and exists on a spectrum. Asexual people, also known as ace or aces, may have little interest in having sex, even though most desire emotionally intimate relationships. Within the ace community, there are many ways for people to identify. Asexuality is a sexual orientation like bi, gay, lesbian, and pan. There are many happy, healthy relationships that don't have sex involved in them. Unfortunately, in the 1970s and 80s, the language and understanding around LGBTQIA plus just didn't exist as it does today. 
I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So um, now we are going to dive into the timeline, uh, and we're going to start it off with Beth. What do you got? On July 21st, 1979, Edward Hope Teddy Smith disappeared. Teddy was 14. He was athletic and loved watching and playing sports. He was raised in the East Lake Meadows housing project where he lived with his single mother. Like a lot of kids in the neighborhood, he was poor. Teddy did odd jobs and errands to earn extra cash, and he was street smart. That night, he took his girlfriend on a date at a local skating rink and was never seen alive again. Alfred Evans was 13 and grew up near Smith with his mother, Lois Evans, and his brother. He had just graduated from the seventh grade and played basketball and boxed at Warren Memorial Boys Club. Like Edward, he also did odd jobs around his neighborhood to earn extra cash, which sometimes contributed to him staying out late at night. Alfred was last seen around July 25th. When he didn't come home that night, his mom wasn't immediately worried, but she called the police the next day. They told her not to worry because he'd run away before and would probably turn up in a day or two. Police said the boy ran with a tough crowd, so his case was not given priority. Teddy Smith had been missing for one week when his body was found on July 28, 1979, in a wooded area in southeast Atlanta. A woman rummaging for aluminum, can- aluminum cans discovered the body. And by the way, this is something poor people do. My, like my grandpa used to do this, get yeah. cans for cash. Um, yeah. He had been shot with a 22 caliber weapon. Police searching the scene later discovered the body of Alfred James Evans nearby. The cause of death was later determined to be probable asphyxia, and he had been strangled and his neck broken. Their deaths were the beginning of the series of murders believed to be committed by the Atlanta child killer, so-called because it was assumed there was only one perpetrator. Tipsters said the boys' deaths may have been drug-related and reported that both boys were seen smoking cannabis at a nearby home. 14-year-old Milton Harvey was last seen riding a yellow 10-speed bicycle, going to the bank for his mom on September 4, 1979. His body wasn't discovered until November 16th, 1979, when it was found in a wooded area. An autopsy report concluded the cause of death was unknown. 
Nine-year-old Yusuf Bell lived in the McDaniel Glen Housing Authority with his mother, Camille Bell, sisters Tanya and Marie, and older brother Jonathan. His father was John Bell. On October 21, 1979, Yusuf's neighbor asked if he would go to the store to buy her some cigarettes at a convenience store a couple blocks away. And this is something people used to do back then. Right. <laughs> ask, ask their kids to go get them cigarettes. Yeah. Yusuf was a helpful little boy, so when his elderly neighbor asked him to run the errand, he was happy to do so. Like other boys at this time, Yusuf would often run errands like this for extra cash. Yusuf was described as bright and ambitious. George Freeman told the Washington Post in 1981, he knew math and history. What was what and how to do it? He was somebody like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Yusuf was seen at the store and walking home, but he never made it home. One neighbor said that he saw him get into a blue car that she thought was being driven by John Bell, Yusuf's father, but his mother Camille dismissed this witness because she had a drinking problem. Yusuf's body was found November 8th, 1979 in a vacant school. He was found only in the cutoff brown shorts he was last seen in and with a piece of masking tape stuck to them. He had been hit over the head twice and the cause of death was listed as asphyxiation by manual strangulation. Now, he was nine. Um, yeah. Following a more than four-month lull without a suspicious death of any of Atlanta's children, the murders began again with the killing of Angel Lanier. She was age 12 and the first female victim. Her remains were found March 10th, 1980, tied to a tree, and strangulation was once again the cause of death. An electrical cord was the weapon. She appeared to have been sexually abused and a pair of underwear that were not her own had been shoved into her mouth. She was the fifth victim in nine months. Angel's murder was followed by the murder of Jeffrey Lamar Mathis, age 10. Jeffrey lived in the West End neighborhood of Atlanta with his mother, Willie Mae Mathis, and six siblings. He was last seen March 11, 1980, and his body was found on February 13, 1981. It continues. Eric Middlebrooks, age 14, was last seen on May 18, 1980, and was found the next day lying behind a bar next to his bike with a head injury. He had injuries to his neck and three stab wounds to his chest. He was a foster child and earned money by fixing bikes around the neighborhood. His brother described him as a bright kid, but given his circumstances in life, he and his brother had to grow up quickly. He was street smart and bigger than most of the other victims or the earlier victims. Red fiber was found at the bottom of Middlebrook's shoe. An investigator collected those fibers as evidence. In May of 1980, Yusuf's mother, Camille Bell, organized the Committee to Stop Children's Murders. We got together in a sort of support group, and the more we talked, we found that none of us had been able to get the police to keep in touch with us, Bell told People in 1980. Mm. They wouldn't call us back. Nothing was being done. Well, I hate to say it, but it starts with an R and ends... Well, but then again, I forgot <laughs> the whole police force was mostly black. Um, yeah, I think it had more to do with the the kids were poor. The kids were poor. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, who knows? But on June 9th, 1980, Christopher Richards, Richardson, age 12, left his home in Decatur, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, where he lived with his grandparents and two brothers to go swimming. Christopher was described as a sweet and timid boy. His brothers headed to the pool a couple blocks away without him, and Christopher took off later on his own. I guess he was arguing with his mom about a shirt or something. Uh, he was last seen near Crystal Hamburgers, walking towards the DeKalb County's Midway Recreation center in Midway Park, where the pool was located. Christopher's body was found on January 9th, 1981. So the next victim was Latanya Wilson, age seven. She was taken from her bedroom June 22nd, 1980, and her skeletal remains were found on October 18th, 1980 in an abandoned lot. The next victim was Aaron D. Weish, age 10, and he was last seen on June 23rd, 1980. His body was found the next day with the cause of death being asphyxia. By now, that's 10 black kids that had disappeared and had been murdered. But the police at this time still weren't treating the deaths and disappearances as connected. That may have been because the cause of death was different for some. Most were strangled, one was shot, and some bodies were too decomposed to determine the cause of death. But the mothers of the murdered and missing children suspected that because the victims' families were all poor and all black, that the investigation wasn't treated as a priority. Anthony Bernard Carter, age nine, was last seen on July 6, 1980. One of the investigating officers in the HBO documentary said that Anthony's mother, Vera Carter, was a sex worker and alleged that she was neglectful. That same detective said that Vera told him that she killed her son. Family members disagreed, saying that she loved and cared for Anthony and he was her only child. Yeah, that was an interesting take. And then another clip of Camille Bell popped up and said, if you think I killed my kids, come and get me. And I was like, Come don't <laughs> yeah, mess she with was a Camille. Force, yeah, she was. Yeah, she yeah. was. Um, Anthony had recently moved in with his mother after being raised by his grandmother. Anthony and about 39 of his friends were playing with water guns and playing hide and seek outside. At some point, Anthony just disappeared and his body was found on July 7th, 1980. He had been stabbed to death in the back and the chest. 10-year-old Earl Lee Tyrell was street smart for, and big for his age, and he was known as a tough guy with some discipline problems at school. On July 30th, Earl, with his brother Anthony and some friends, went swimming. Anthony gave Earl his gold swim trunks because Earl didn't have his own. But while at the pool, Earl got kicked out for causing problems with the other kids and threatening a lifeguard. The kids he went there with just assumed he would walk home and they'd see him later, but he never turned up. The next day, a man called Earl's home to say that he had Earl in Alabama and asked for $200 by Friday. $200, that's it? Well, in the 80s, I mean, <laughs> I'm assuming that's a lot, right? I, I mean, guess. $200 for me today is a lot of money. <laughs> I know, so, but to, to, to kidnap somebody? That's a good point. You know what? OG a true crime. Here she is again. <laughs> dissect dissecting this case fiber by fiber. Uh his voice was described as that of a middle-aged white man with a southern drawl. Uh however, no subsequent call came. Earl Tyrell's body was found on January 9th, 
1981, strangled to death, and according to his brother, his skeletal remains were found with the gold-colored swim trunks still on. And when they say gold, they mean, uh, they don't mean like the metallic color gold, they mean yellow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the end of 1980, at least 12 of Atlanta's children had been murdered with their cases unresolved. Most of the bodies had been found outdoors, either in vacant lots the woods or behind houses and buildings. One theory was that the murders had been committed by the same person or persons. Another theory was that many of the victims were runaways or young hustlers who were murdered because of their lifestyles. But rumors in the black community named the Klan or the police as responsible. On Tuesday, on Tuesday, I don't know Tuesday. if it was a Tuesday. Uh, on, on Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <sighs> on August twentieth, nineteen eighty, Clifford Jones, age thirteen, went to the store with his aunt Ermentha Williams to get some sugar for her birthday cake. His grandmother was going to bake. When they got to the store, he asked Armentha if he could hang around the store or hang around outside of the store in order to help people with their groceries for a little extra cash. And she agreed. But when Armentha came out of the store, Clifford had just disappeared. His body was found the next day. He had been strangled with a ligature as opposed to manual strangulation by hand. The fact that Jones was from another city, he was from Cleveland and was just visiting relatives, likely helped turn up the heat and bring national attention to the case. Camille Bell said that it wasn't until the death of Clifford Jones that the case earned real attention from national media. The city took notice at last, Bell said, because of the national attention and the threat to Atlanta's convention business. So it was all about the Benjamins. It sure was. A witness named Freddie Cosby told police that he saw James Edward Jamie Brooks raping and strangling Clifford. Freddie Cosby's account was disregarded by police because they already had their sights set on Wayne Williams, and Freddie was a person with a lower level of intelligence, but the source I uh, got this from said that they used the R word. Um, Brooks was a known pedophile and was uh, eventually imprisoned for the rape of a child, and he died in the 80s of AIDS, but police never pursued that avenue of investigation. Yeah, and we have to say that uh, at this time, they didn't have their sights on Wayne Williams. This story, I think, came out later. Okay. Right. The next victim was Darren Glass, age 11, who was last seen on September 14th, 1980, getting off the church bus after an Atlanta Braves game. His body was never found, but according to former FBI official Susan Lloyd, his disappearance led the FBI to open a kidnapping investigation based on the theory that the boy may have been taken across state lines. So prior to this point, the FBI had absolutely no jurisdiction because murder is not a federal crime, but kidnapping across state lines is. Before the FBI involvement, there were just they were just on the periphery as the Atlanta PD wasn't willing to let the FBI take over and they weren't openly sharing any information. The FBI then used the kidnapping theory in order to get involved in the case. The next victim was Charles Stevens, age 10, who went missing from his home where he lived with his mother, Ernestine, father, Charles Stevens Sr., and sister, Tina. Charles was last seen at home on October 9th, 1980, where he was watching TV and drawing. He was going to go visit a friend later that day. Charles's body was 
found the next day on a grassy hill near the entrance to Longview Trailer Park. He was missing his t-shirt and one shoe. Rub marks were found on his nose and mouth. The cause of death was ruled undetermined asphyxiation. Several pieces of evidence from some of the crime scenes had common denominators. Green nylon carpet fibers and dog hairs were found on many of the bodies. At the time, hair and fiber analysis was a relatively new forensic science. Mm, questionable. <laughs> At some point in October of 1980, information about the carpet fibers and dog hairs was leaked to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which published it. Afterwards, the pattern of disposal changed and bodies began to be dumped near or into either the Chattahoochee River or the South River, presumably to wash away the evidence. On October 13, 1980, there was an explosion at the Bowen Homes Daycare Center, located in a predominantly Black low-income housing project in northwest Atlanta. The explosion killed four children and a teacher and injured seven others. The residents of the Bowen Homes thought the deaths were related to the child killings, but it turned out to be a faulty water tube overheating in the water heater. Mm. This event and the bodies of young children piling up contributed to the feelings in the Black community that they, and particularly their children, were under siege. The Black community was fearful and angry at the lack of action by authorities. Many thought that the, they were being terrorized again by the KKK. On November 1st, 1980, Aaron Jackson, age nine, went missing. Aaron had last been seen at Moreland Avenue Shopping Center. Aaron's ja Aaron Jackson's remains were found the next day on the banks of Atlanta's Chattahoochee River. Aaron had been asphyxiated and he was the first victim to be found in or near a body of water. He was victim number 16. It appeared that each of the Atlanta child killers victims were kidnapped before being shot, strangled, stabbed, or bludgeoned, and police still had no clue who the perpetrator or perpetrators were. Atlanta residents were terrified and lived in fear during this time. Some parents in the city removed their children from school, and many forbade them from playing outside. When kids did go outside, they traveled in groups. Black men in the communities formed what was called bat patrols because they patrolled their neighborhoods carrying baseball bats since carrying guns was illegal. The media called them vigilantes because the news is racist. Amen. <laughs> but they were just men protecting their communities and their young children because the police were not. The media did a poor job covering the lives and losses of the Black community. Black mother's grief was made a spectacle, and the children were painted as street kids who were unsupervised and neglected, almost um, deserving of whatever they got. Camille Bell was among the most visible and vocal of the mothers of the missing and murdered children. Even back then, she was pleading with the powers that be in Atlanta that Black lives mattered. She, along with Venus Taylor and Willie Mae Mathis, formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murder or STOP, and Camille became its chair. She came from an educated family in Philadelphia, and she herself was educated. She was outspoken, sharp, and relentless in her fight to find out who was doing this to their kids and why. Yeah, I felt like she was like... Um the hero in the story. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, although Maynard Jackson was Atlanta's first black mayor, he drew the ire of the city's poor and working class black communities who accused Jackson of privileging Atlanta's business friendly reputation over the safety and well-being of its most vulnerable residents. 
Finally, after intense pressure from the mothers, the media, the mayor, and the city, in the spring of 1980, authorities began to look at the string of murders as a whole, looking for patterns and similarities. Most of the victims had been been dumped in the woods or in vacant buildings. Other than that, they were poor, young, and black. It was believed that the crimes were sexual in nature, even though there was no semen or trauma around the genitals. Hmm, interesting. Um, a victim's list was created due to pressure from parents, protesters, and the mayor. Victims were put on the list if it was thought that the murders were related, but also if the family pleaded enough with authorities to add their loved one on the list or if the mayor asked them to do it. Yeah, so they weren't necessarily connected if mm-hmm. they were on the list. Um, some of it had to do with pressure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The mayor put out a $100,000 reward for anyone who had information that led to the capture of whoever was responsible for these crimes. It was at this time that the case began to make national news and a task force was created. Also at this time, the rate of killings ramped up. Local politicians, the news media, and Georgia Senator Sam Nunn asked the Department of Justice to permit FBI involvement, and the Attorney General finally did so on November 6, 1980, authorizing a preliminary investigation. And on November 17, 1980, the FBI major case investigation known as ATKID uh, was officially opened, and the FBI became officially involved in the case. Now, before we started to doing this uh, story, I thought at kid uh, was Atlanta and then kid, like child. Oh. Okay. But it's for kidnapping. <laughs> Atlanta oh. kidnapping. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you that for was clarifying. Interesting, interesting <laughs> indeed. OG, a true crime comes through every time. <laughs> We listened to an interview of the FBI agent on the case at the time, John Glover, who is now retired. And this was on Jerry Williams' podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review. And I've shouted out that podcast before. I really find it fascinating listening to these stories. Yeah, absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. So John Glover is a black man who was the special agent in charge of the Atlanta division at the time. He oversaw the FBI investigation and led the joint state federal task force. Agent Glover said that prior to the time the FBI became officially involved, the mayor had asked numerous times for the FBI to come in, but they could not do so because there was no indication that the missing murdered Uh, children had been kidnapped and taken across state lines. Once they did become involved, the Bureau mandate was that they were to conduct an independent investigation while simultaneously assisting the local task force with manpower, guidance, and technical assistance. The Atlanta PD said that they were conducting a thorough investigation that included interviews, but when the FBI became involved, they found that was not the case. So they had to go out and interview people all over again. Uh, Remember that the Atlanta PD staff uh, was relatively green at the time because many of the senior officers had left. Mm -hmm. The FBI focused on about a dozen disappearances with several shared traits. The victims were all young black males who vanished in broad daylight in fairly public locations. Their bodies were found in desolate areas. Their murders had no obvious motivation by contrast to other homicides from that period appeared to have been gang related. These Commonality suggested a single killer. 
Somewhere around this time, because this was now a national story, President Reagan dispatched Vice President George H.W. Bush to Atlanta to talk with Atlanta leaders and visit with families of the victims. Psychics started flocking to Atlanta to offer their resources. Yay! (laughs) Anything would help at this point, right? They're just grasping at straws, straws, throwing spaghetti, see what'll stick. Celebrities use their influence and money to contribute to the cause to solve the crimes. Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. did a benefit concert to raise money for the cause. They raised $150,000 to go toward Mm. the investigation. Muhammad Ali donated $450,000. Wow. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan committed $3 million in grants for resources for the investigation. Wow. 16-year-old Patrick Rogers was last seen on November 10th, 1980. Patrick was one of eight kids and lived with his mother in the projects. He was protective of his younger siblings. He loved singing and would sing in local talent shows. Everyone in the neighborhood knew him, and his nickname was Patman. Folks became concerned when he didn't pick his youngest brother up from the bus stop as he was supposed to, and his mother called the police. His remains were found on December 7, 1980, on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. The cause of death was a skull fracture due to blunt force trauma. In December of 1980, the city of Atlanta imposed a curfew for youths under the age of 16. They aired PSAs in which the announcer asked, It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? By now, 17 children were missing or murdered. Whoo-wee. Well, that is where we are going to leave off for this week, y'all. Join us next week when we finish up the story and get into our takeaways. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Well, the idea here so far with what we've listened to is keeping our kids safe. Um, This case was able to create uh, sort of a boogeyman out of a stranger. And I think it is true, absolutely true. Stranger danger still works with the kiddos. Um, But unfortunately, um, most children who are abused or worse, uh, it's done by somebody they know. So if you suspect a child is being harmed, you can visit childwelfare.gov or the hotline.org, um, which is the National Domestic Violence Abuse um, Hotline, and uh, look into how to go about reporting um, suspected abuse. Um, please do your due diligence, though. Don't just... <laughs> Uh, that kid didn't get any Pop-Tarts, so I'm going to call. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how that works. So, uh, but, uh, let me speak to your manager. Let me see. Yeah. Let, come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, real talk. I mean, now that we're, we're still in quarantine, this has been six months in quarantine. And uh, unfortunately people 
and uh, people have been quarantining with their abusers. And we talked about yeah. this before we went on break. Those domestic um, abuse calls are going up. Um, so if you see something, um, you know, you sh- you should report it. Um, but for general safety tips for kiddos, know that even our littles should practice keeping their heads on a swivel and trust their little guts. Uh, teach your children about tricky people um, and tricky being the keyword. So people who ask kids to break the rules or to do something that feels like no bueno, thumbs down, or offers to teach a kid something for free, or says a lot of nice things and gives kids a lot of attention and gifts, but can also make you feel guilty, you know, tricky, icky. Um, grownups, uh, by the way, we should, grownups should never ask children for help. And yeah. kids should know if a grownup is asking you for directions or help with something, red flag. Yeah. Uh, also teach your kids their addresses and phone numbers um, and that there is safety in numbers. Um, so the buddy system is a good way to ensure that kids don't go anywhere by their, by themselves. But if there's a group of them, obviously there's, they're safer that way. Um, and have a family code word. This is my favorite true, like how not to get murdered tip for kids. And we've recycled it throughout the years we've been on this show, but it is just so fire. Have a family code word in case someone stops by uh, your kid and it's like, hey, your mom told me to come get you. And if they don't know the motherfucking code word, keep it moving. (laughs) Uh, We also have to consider uh, kids safety online teach kids not to give out personal information, including pictures, not to agree to meet online without checking with parents. Don't do anything without checking with parents. I have a $50 bill that I'm still paying because my kids didn't check with me. Anyway, don't let them do anything without checking with you. Don't respond to messages, especially the mean ones. Um, And if anything feels icky, thumbs down, like not good, um, that they come across online, be sure your kids are comfortable enough to, or know to come to a parent or grown up who can help them and protect them. So those are great tips. I really like, uh, how you described it as feeling icky or thumbs down because kids understand that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, if I don't think anybody ever told me that when I was a kid, anything mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. I know that feeling, but I don't think I could have described what it was to somebody and gone to an adult and said, Oh, this is making me feel icky. You right? know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the sources, some of those were off the dome. Um, uh, but uh, the sources <laughs> that I uh, found the other stuff from will be in our footnotes. Awesome. Um, so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we basically shout out any content about or by any marginalized or other gr- other groups. So um, I wanted to sh- or also <laughs> silly me also true crime goodies. Um, so <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, what is this show? Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there is a true crime documentary on HBL called A Storm Over Brooklyn. You heard of this? Uh-uh. Uh, it is about the murder of Yusuf Hawkins in 1989 in New York when Yusuf went to go look for uh, a used car and 30 or 40 white kids in the neighborhood um, attacked uh 
Yusuf and his uh, friends. Uh, oh my it was God. a group of four black teenagers and they attacked with bats. Oh, and holy shit. Somebody shot and killed Yusuf. Wow. Um, the story was in the news recently because there's an employee of a really popular radio station in New York. I can't think of the name, but I listen to Ebro in the morning and Ebro is, it's like a hip hop show. Uh-huh. Um, and that individual who worked at that station was involved in the case and oh it was revealed God. in the documentary and he uh so it made it made big news uh, wow. but anyway what's interesting about the documentary is that we like to think that new new york city is like this melting pot with very little racism and boy would we be dead wrong yeah. Yeah. um so it's really really fascinating i can't believe so, that happened in 1989 that doesn't i mean i guess yeah. it was a really long time ago but it that was when my daughter was born crazy yeah. huh and it's yeah. not that long after the central park five there were other um big news headlines like al sharpton is in it um wow. and uh there was a black girl who said she was raped by police mm. and Al Sharpton like defended her. And um, the police said it didn't happen. She lied. And our, our Al Sharpton was like, this is what this girl says. You should take her word for it. And um, th- I think the media portrayed Al Sharpton as a guy who believes liars. And um, this was on the heels of that event. So wow. there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of racial tensions in New York yeah. at this time. So the uh, documentary really, really does a good job of captivating, hmm. captivating well, all that. So check that well, out. Thank you. Storm yeah. over Brooklyn. What all do you right. got, Beth? Hey, so remember the time Phil Chalmers connected with us and we were able to talk to a serial killer named Delmas Colvin? I remember <laughs> it well. I do. One of the highlights well, of my life. <laughs> well, Phil has his own podcast now called Where the Bodies Are Buried, and he talks to all the serial killers. <laughs> mm, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You guys should check it out. And his wife, Wendy, also participates in the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I I really like her involvement, involvement, because she says the things that I think like, what the (laughs) fuck, Phil? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's the voice of reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a good. Yeah. It's a great show. I'm already subscribed. Yep. So check that out okay where the bodies are buried thank you very much beth yeah uh well uh until next time where can the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com our facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Yeah. Uh, Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs> 